the Bahya Sutta. Bahya uh, is known as the bark-clad one, or it's this uh, gentleman's clothing were made from bark, bark of a tree. Let's not get all caught up in that. I don't know who made it, if he made it, whether, but at any rate, he, that's his, why he was called Bahya Sutta. At any rate, he was a highly esteemed meditation teacher in ancient India um, and <clears throat> had a very large following, led a very good life, uh, was honored and treated with great care and reverence um, tremendously in every way. If he were around today, probably would have gotten invited to Oprah Winfrey show written a couple of books, probably started a center like this. Hey, it sounds like me. <laughs> I don't, my clothes are not made from bark, though. Um, <clears throat> and so outwardly, he was considered really, uh, had some real depth, and was a, a spiritual leader. <clears throat> Typically, that would be enough. A person would just go on. But he had some misgivings about himself, some doubts and they were gnawing away at him. One of his, uh, a relative, who he had a, a lot of respect for, uh, <clears throat> consulted with him, who looked out for him, and Bai asked him, he said, um, somehow I know how, uh, how advanced I'm supposed to be, but uh, I'm not sure I'm really free. Uh, and his relative said, you're not. Said. I've been practicing a certain path, a certain style of practice, and I don't know if I'm free yet or not. He said, well, not only are you not, this is the relative, not only are you not free, but the path you're on can't possibly lead to liberation. Or you're going in the wrong direction, buddy, with all your followers and all the rest of it. So typically, put yourself in this person's place, because uh, when I read these suttas, which are thousands of years ago. Remember, it's not from a tape recorder. Uh, some of it's pieced together. We don't know uh, the reliability of it or whatever, but this is the earliest record we have of the original teachings of the Buddha. It's the best we have. And more and more academic scientific evidence shows that some of it was written much later. All of it came later than the Buddha out of memory. Um, <clears throat> In a Dharma talk, for those of you who are new, it's not uh, a talk in the sense of you gathering, acquiring some information. Uh, that's why we suggest you not take notes. I don't see anyone taking notes, which is fine. Um, it's more an opportunity to practice. Now, some of you are very new. Uh, this, what I'm about to say, is maybe new. Uh, but this center, uh, this is an important feature of this center, which is to view meditation not simply as sitting and walking or coming to special places and doing retreats, but as a way of life. It's not a, a gathering a, a pack of techniques to make yourself feel good or reduce stress. Sure. But it's more and more uh, not about techniques so much as a way of living. It's a wisdom path. Okay. So you have an opportunity to practice listening right now. In a little while, I will stop uh, speaking and I'm, I'm practicing speaking. I'm 
paying attention to what I'm saying. Uh, in a little while, you'll have an opportunity to share some uh, observations about your practice or questions, and I'll do my best to listen to you. So it's a practice of mindful listening, mindful speaking. So in that sense, although the formal sitting ended when the bell rang and so forth, and I'm not telling you to sit in full lotus, upright, or anything like that, but see if you can use this in such a way as uh, you practice listening and start to learn about how your mind does listening. You may be surprised, usually not pleasantly. We find that we don't listen really. We think we have, uh, you may hear a few things and if you agree with them, then the mind is very happy. And then it might just skip over for another couple of minutes and what it's gonna do on the weekend and then suddenly it's back. Uh, and then suddenly it doesn't agree with what I said, sounds stupid. And then you go off on a, a whole trip inside your head about what you know that's better than what I just said. And then you realize, oh, and then you come back. So it, it isn't so much, let's say, what I say has no value whatsoever. You still would be using your time well if you practice li learning how you actually listen. The art of listening is a very refined art and extremely an important one. Because communication depends on the quality of listening. We often talk about communication, it's mainly we speak about speaking, but the quality of speaking is dependent on the quality of listening. How could they be separated? What you're saying is dependent on if it's an interaction with another person. So a Dharma talk is more in that spirit. Um, <clears throat> so here's this person, Quite before we even get into the meat of the sutra, this is in the sutra by the way, but before we get into the meat of the sutra, which is there, there's a core teaching in the sutra that is quoted in many, many traditions, especially certainly in this one, but also uh, uh, in, uh, in Zen it's used a lot, it's referred to a lot, and sometimes the Tibetans will refer to it, Tibetan Buddhism. Um, this gentleman, uh, he has a choice. He's sitting on top of the world in one sense, externally, socially, and he finds out and he, he hears from somebody he respects that not only is he not really free, but he's going in a direction that can never help him get free. Real Dharma practice is about liberation. It's about getting free from what? From the suffering, our own suffering. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Now, typically, what, uh, what options might he have? One is to discount his relative. Just say, what does he know? I'm a highly advanced yogi. Uh, it doesn't matter, the others get defensive. The other is to fall back on the security that he has, which is not bad, and just keep doing it. Um, or get defensive and aggressive. There are a lot of things he could do, but what he does is he immediately drops what he's doing he asks his race, says, well, is there anyone in India who supposedly is really free? And he says, yes, there's someone called the Buddha. He's a monk somewhere. This fellow was not a monk. And he tells him where he is, and he said, from all that I hear, this person is genuinely free. So, uh, rather remarkable, this person has a certain humility, and he's much more interested in the truth and wanting to get free than he is in social recognition and some of the things which just normal, just normal people like ourselves would appreciate and, and uh, value extremely highly. He drops all that and immediately takes off to find the Buddha. 
So uh, where are we? What does that say about us? It has to do with an attitude towards, uh, I, this is how I see it. I would say that this practice is, has everything to do with the urgency of self-discovery. That is, uh, now s some of this grows out of the, the, uh, the Buddhist teaching. For, according to the teachings of the Buddha, the root source of our suffering is ignorance. And it's not a matter of how much Dharma information you have or knowing everything that the Buddha and all the other teachings are saying. It's ignorance of yourself. You could be literate. And one of the best teachers I had in Korea was. He literally, and he thought the world was flat. And there was no way of, of convincing him that the world was round. We tried. We used junior high school science. And he just said, no, how could it be round? You know, finally, at one point, he threw up his hands. He said, okay, what do I know? I'm just uh, an illiterate monk living on the top of this mountain all my life. Probably you're right. The world is round. But, and, I don't, I, and I think it's flat, and you know, you're right. Said, has that, knowing that, has that made you any happier? You know, and we sort of, okay, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to, to, to come to truth, but the truth we're concerned about is external. It's about how the world is, and that has profound impact, it's not trivial. So the ignorance the Buddha is talking about is ignorance of ourselves. Uh, it starts, all, you can't understand what the Buddha is saying, no matter how many books about it you read, or how many talks or DVDs or tapes you listen to, unless, it's, unless you understand your own mind. It's about understanding, because everything flows from the mind. The different kinds of qualities of mind that we have, out of that comes action, verbal action, and then physical action. That's where life comes from. So uh, it makes sense to start learning about that mind that seems to produce actions which have consequences for ourselves and for others. We call it karma, whatever you like to call it. Uh, the actions have consequences, they're not trivial. So um, it seems that this person put that on a very high premium. That's why uh, he was doing this. He really, uh, it was tri as I see it, it's urgent. When it, what is the word urgent? When, it, when, I, when I say urgent, what does that bring up for you? It means something that needs to be attended to. And ideally, right now, it's like if somebody is very, very sick or there's been a serious accident, we go to the emergency room or it's urgent. Uh, there can be all kinds of other reasons for urgency, as you know. Uh, that means it's something that we know it has to be attended to and right now. Now, I don't think we see this, this realm of self-understanding, self-discovery, wisdom that way. Some people more and more are seeing that, that no matter how refined and brilliant our outer understanding develops into, becomes, it seems like the quality of life uh, doesn't seem to uh, go, uh, go along with it. I think this is not a, such a, uh, a stark announcement. If you just read the uh, superficially, the, the, a friend of mine and I, when we, we uh, uh, went to the University of Chicago, there was a big, thick book on the history of the world at that time. We just, we played a game. We opened up our blind, and we just put our finger in. And no matter what year you po po poked your finger, it was full of wars, famines, you know. It's, so it's always been this way. Now we have an, other ways of suffering 
which perhaps are intensified by the incredible power of technology where we literally can extinguish ourselves. So I use the word urgency, but now if you don't, oh, that's, uh, I don't care about that stuff. I care about myself. Good. That's where it starts. Uh, if you're s totally in love with the way you're living and how everything is, what are you doing here? <laughs> it's kind of a little muggy in this room. You know, you crowd it in. You know, you got to sit here. How many people's bodies are uncomfortable right now? Show of hands. You know, uh, so there must be something that brings you here, and I have to assume that to some degree you care. You care about, uh, you want to improve the quality of life. You care about the quality of your life. I'll put it, leave it at that. So apparently, uh, Bahia certainly did, because he did something rather unusual. He gave up drops, uh, tremendous security, fame, etc., and he went in search of somebody who could help him. So finally, after a long travel, according to this sutta, uh, he, come, he says, where's the Buddha? And he says, well, the Buddha is out on alms round. That is, every day the monks go and go around with bowls and people give them food. Um, <clears throat> so uh, so Baya runs and finds the Buddha, and the Buddha's in the midst of, along with other monks, of walking, and the villagers are putting food in his bowl. And Baya... Uh, comes up to him and says, I, I, I want to speak to you. I have to speak to you. It's urgent. I want to know about the truth. And the Buddha says, this is not the right time. Can you see it? I'm gathering food. Uh, let's do it some other time when it's appropriate. Baya doesn't give up. He keeps following the Buddha. He does it a second time. And in the suttas, for some reason, it's always three times. And then finally, the Buddha relents. It's always, you read it for yourself, you'll see. I don't know. Numerologists, maybe they'll find significance in it. I, I, all I know is it's there. So finally, uh, uh, Bahia says to the Buddha, look, life is unpredictable. It's uncertain. You could die at any time. I could die at any time. I really need, I need some help. I really want to understand how, how to get free. What teaching, and I need it. Uh, and the Buddha said, well, I haven't got time. Uh, I'll give you a quick version, a short version. So the Buddha does, and here's the heart of the sutra. But already, can you see some of the qualities that are being exemplified by this human being? Now, I'm not telling you to get, go insane and out, drop out of school, quit your job, end your family, disown your children, and you know, run around, I don't know where. It's, it's not in India. It's in you and in me. Um, but it does show that uh, here's someone who started to value tremendously uh, self-discovery. That's why I use the word urgent. And discovery means you come to this, this that's talking right now, with a fresh mind and try to find out, what is this? What is this that all these words are coming out of the mouth and people have come and are listening and arms are waving and it's dressed this way? What is this? What is this all about? How did this get to be this way? Okay. Um, <clears throat> so here's the. Uh, the key quote. Uh, this is what the Buddha does to kind of finally shake this guy, you know, kind of get rid of him for goodness sakes. <laughs> He says, then Baya, you should train yourself thus. 
uh, I'll, I'll clarify the language in a moment, but this is, a, a, I think, a decent translation. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In other words, whatever you see, there's just what you see. In reference to the herd, there's only the herd with these ears. In reference to the sense, all the sense doors, only the sense. In reference to the cognized, uh, in other words, whatever is thought about, this includes emotional life. There's only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you, there will be only the scene in reference to the scene, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then by a, there's no you in terms of that. When there's no you in terms of that, there's no you there. When there's no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. Hmm. Uh, what uh, is being suggested here, and I'll try to put it in language that's more, I hope, accessible. Uh, if you read, it's not all just the Buddha. If you read uh, spiritual teachings, I think you can see they all, one way or another, at least in Buddhism, um, they're the consciousness is, is uh, the magnitude of what we call consciousness of the mind is vast. Just it's in, it, it is said it's infinite. Okay. Now, so the, the consciousness is made up of that which is conditioned. Conditioned is something that we all have been conditioned. You grew up in a certain family, culture, education, and so forth. I, same for myself. All of us, we, this pure energy got conditioned. Just like air, an air conditioner, the air conditioner conditions the air, makes it cool. So if you grew up in X culture, it trains you a certain way. If you grew up in Y culture, you become a Y person. If it's Z culture, you become a Z person. The problem is, that, that would be all right, it seems to be inevitable, you have to learn how to speak, except the Z people think the A people are inferior, but the A people think that the B people are better than, and so it goes. So. We do something with that. We do, but so the conditioned energy is what we're living in the midst of. That's what we think is all there is. Now, what, let's say, the Buddha is saying is, yes, the conditioned energy, uh, we m might call it the psyche. So if you get interested in this, you're becoming a psychonaut. Because what you're being asked to do is not go up to the heavens, but start to explore yourself, starting with what's immediately accessible, that you're breathing, that you have thoughts, that you hear sounds, that you smell fragrances, uh, that the body feels a certain way, that emotions come out, and so forth. So you go, we all, and certainly in Vipassana, we always start with exactly how it is for us. Now, what the, what the Buddha is saying here is when he says, in the hearing there's just what's heard, what in the world does that mean? A sound is literally just a sound. Now, let's say uh, an ambulance comes by on Broadway or a police car chasing someone or in a hurry to get somewhere. That will make a sound. Uh, often, uh, sometimes even on retreats, people will go like this or scrunch up their faces. But then, let's say if, if some birds start chirping, chirp, chirp, 
little smile will come on the face. Okay, now all it is is that sound. It's just chirp, chirp. But then quickly, the mind is so fast, and that's conditioned. We've been conditioned uh, to like certain things and dislike others. It's very individual. Some people hear something or see something or taste something. It's food as well. And we love it, and other people can't stand it. So this conditioning is a large part of what we know as being me, as being life. Okay? So that the Buddha is saying a thought is just a thought. Um, there was a retreat at, at uh, IMS that um, I was teaching some years ago. And there was, a, a, due to some confusion, this is a long retreat, uh, about three weeks. And typically it's very silent up there. It's in the country. There are people starting to saw and, and knock on wood. And, you know, sort of like uh, what happened is the builders got their dates they they had a di- the front office and the builders had different dates and we came up to practice and suddenly uh, people were we were sitting and suddenly all this noise started to happen so now what would with these, with these, these teachings that are, as a basis what's the practical value of it um, it took me a few days but finally I figured out what to do I mean because I had a deal with it was so much people wanted to go home I didn't come here to listen to people sawing and hammering and you know, uh, I just want to hear chirp chirp okay <laughs> okay uh, so when I when I asked people I says who makes noise what do you mean who makes noise no let's say noise here is not is a scientific use of it that's neutral noise here is no good right we don't like noise sound is neutral I'm saying what do you mean, who makes it? Well, thought makes it. In other words, this is a silent retreat. These people shouldn't be doing this. This should be silent. And it isn't. And so the mind has an enormous role as it quickly jumps in, is mixed in with perception, in this case hearing, and then thought comes in and makes up whatever it wants to. Now, once you start to see that the ro- the mind... In other words, so I ask people, is the are these... Uh, carpenters and people working are th- are th- this sound are they attacking you or are you attacking them so they thought it says I guess they're not attacking you it's nothing personal they're just not because we found out they had to do it for a couple of more days so I said look we can turn this around and in this practice we have a saying a bad situation is a good situation if you're new it might sound crazy like I didn't come here to, for bad situations well whether you came here for it or not you will have them if you're alive, you'll have some bad situations. And you can sit for a thousand years, you'll still have bad situations. If you're alive, that's the way it goes, sorry. So um, the attacking is the mind doesn't like it. And uh, because it doesn't like it, um, it gets at a war with it, and then you have a problem. Now, how does that become a wisdom practice? As you start to pay attention, you can see it at work you can see the mind has set up how it should be rather than how it is. I'll use the term what is. What is is just exactly how it is. Bang, bang, bang. That's what, that's what is. Uh, what should be is what the mind makes up about what it likes, about the future. And um, 
the gap between what is and what should be, or sometimes it compares it to the past. In this case, people did that. I've been on 15 retreats here, and I've never had to deal with this noise. And so then the mind was comparing it to the past and, and got into trouble that way. Okay, so uh, if you could see the role that the mind was playing, um, and as, as the power of thinking started to dissolve, what you were left with was just pure sound. And since you could see the mind expecting things and wanting things to be a certain way, and you can see suffering coming about as a result. Now, for those of you who knew, you have to understand the people on this retreat were familiar with some of these teachings, the core teachings, and also had some meditative experience. So central to all Buddhist teachings are the Four Noble Truths. There is suffering in life. It's not saying life is just totally suffering, some people think. And it's caused by craving and attachment. Okay, so they could see, I'm suffering because I want things to be a certain way, and they aren't. Now, I'm not saying it's so great that people are doing carpentry while we're doing a retreat, but it was just a fact. Okay, so since it was that way, we have a choice of either leaving, we could spend our time being disgruntled and angry, and then having to deal with that, uh, or we can turn a bad situation into a good situation by using that to learn about how we turn suffering out of just sound. Okay, that may be, if, so that sound isn't noise as I'm using those terms, those words. Okay, let me give you other examples which perhaps, because um, I think, I'm, thinking is central. Remember, what this teaching is saying is thought is just a thought. Let's take a moment with that because that's going to be central. I'm going to try to cover the essence of the, the sutta in the time we have allotted this evening. Did you know that a thought is just a thought? Think about that for a moment. A thought is just, that's what it is. A thought is a thought. Blah, 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 blah. It could be a brilliant thought. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> or it could be a stupid thought. Blah, blah, blah. But it's a thought. And they're, they're coming through the mind. Some make sense. Some are we've, uh, over and over again for 200,000 time, what we're going to tell someone off, how we're going to do it, you know, and for the last 10 years we've been going to tell them off, and then when we see them, hi, how are you? <laughs> oh, you're fine, me too, everything's great, love you. Okay, so, um, okay, let me give you some other examples about the power of thinking when it's unexamined. Uh, this helped me a lot. Many years ago, when I first started teaching, uh, years ago, before the hippie and you know, uh, civil rights and Vietnam and all that, many of you might have not even been born then, but there was before all that, um, it was customary at many schools, certainly Ivy League schools, for people to spend their junior year in France. And all, now Oriental things are in vogue, right? Good. Then French things, but French wines and French cheese. So everyone was eating and pronouncing, you know, with, if you could pronounce the name of the cheese and the wine with an authentic French accent, you were up here. If you, if you were from Brooklyn as I, and you can't say it, well, you're okay, but you know, try to learn, try this French cheese, okay? So this person came into an interview and she was roaring with laughter. I said, what's so funny? He said, I've been eating, she mentioned a French cheese. I, I don't remember the name of it. She, mentioned the French cheese, said, uh, I've been eating this French cheese for 10 years, and I just realized, because in meditation you're also encouraged to bring mindfulness into everything, including eating. 
says, and I suddenly realized that I don't like it. So I said, in other words, you've been eating a concept for 10 years. You've been eating the idea of French. He says, yeah. And because, you, because everyone, it was in vogue, and, and it, made, it did something for you when you did it. Now, you can see where this is going. Let me give you a few more examples, and then I'll get to one that is more poignant. Um, let's say I invited you over, and I said, um, and you said, well, what are we going to have for dinner? And I said, oh, we're just going to have some raw fish, uncooked fish. Uh, you would think I'm crazy. You say, well, you know, on second thought, I don't think I can make it. I mean, just raw fish. But if I said, we're going to have sushi, oh, oh, sushi, that's different. Then it's different because now, now I'm not, this is not the merit of sushi. It's healthy, it isn't healthy, it's dangerous. I'm not getting into that. But if you were just descriptive about it, years ago before it became sushi, it was just, well, come in and sit down and have some raw fish. What, are you crazy? Or this didn't last as long, uh, Cajun food. Come on in, what are we having? Well, some burnt chicken. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just a very, a lot of, you know, we just burn it up and it, it, it's, they, and then you, but then you find out it's Cajun and it originated in New Orleans and everyone who's anyone who's eating is eating Cajun. Oh, Cajun, oh, okay, sure. Okay. Try this one out. Go to the Museum of Fine Arts if you're drawn to it or listen to your favorite piece of music. I've done these things and I've encouraged people to do it and it's great fun and you'll learn a lot about your mind. Let's say, let's say you majored in art history. You're seeing particular paintings if you go to the Museum of Fine Art. The more you know, the less you see because the, the mind is seeing the painting. It's yesterday looking at the painting and you still appreciate it but a lot of that is because the mind is telling you how great it is because you've heard it again and again. Now it may be great but now once you see that, that falls away. And then we get to the very famous central. It's a form of intelligence in all Dharma teachings. You've heard it, perhaps, I hope, beginner's mind or don't know mind. That means the mo a fresh mind that is not seeing things through yesterday. Yesterday means all the knowledge you've accumulated. Everything you've learned, in, if it's art history, it doesn't have, or anything. Uh, a famous name, and you sit down and you watch it. Now. You can see the mind doing that, or you listen to music, and can you hear it as pure sound? You'll find it's very difficult to do. You hear, let's say, I like Bach and Beethoven very much, and then the mind's telling you who you were with when you were in Vienna, and you heard this concert, and, and you know who the, who the conductor was and how great it was, and, th and then out of that comes a blend of you're enjoying it. Now, I'm not trying to take the joy away from it, but you're seeing how, the comp how conditioning works. And it works about people. We form conclusions about people. And then they get frozen, and that becomes who they are. So if we see a thought as just a thought, which is really what it is, uh, what happens is with thinking, okay, now I'm getting into something a, a lot deeper. Um, we tend to also, the mind, if you start looking at your mind, I realize some of you are rather new to this. If you, in our practice, we learn, first off, we learn ways of helping the mind become much more calm and steady. One tried and true way is breath awareness. Another is metta, loving kindness. There are many ways to do it. But just being mindful as much as you can throughout the day, the mind will start to calm down, become more clear, and more fit to be able to see things clearly. Okay? 
Uh, and if you start looking at your mind uh, openly, what you're going to uh, hope you, well, I've seen it in my own mind. The mind, there's a parade of notions about who you are. The mind will tell you you're rotten, no good, you were never any good. Then it's passed and it says, that's not true, you're a wonderful person, you're great and everyone loves you and then that one goes on and another one comes and then the rotten one comes back and tries to elbow out the one that says you're good and uh, before you know it then suddenly totally irrelevant comes to us. It's about what you're going to do when you retire 20 years from now and then the thoughts just, it's like the brain is just secreting this stuff. A lot of it, maybe when you were a child, someone told you something about yourself or some, uh, I have a friend some math teacher told, insulted her, you know, just put her down in, the, in a math class in the Soviet Union. She was brought up in the Soviet Union. And just, it's like, you're stupid if you don't understand math. If you don't understand math, just commit suicide and get it over with, because science and math is really where it's at. Everything else is a waste of time. So this person, as an adult, that thought, it's, a condi it's conditioned. Now, so let's say, if you look at your mind, you're going to see that. You're going to see old wounds. The event is over. It could be 25 and 30 years ago. But the wound is still there. There's a trace. The bullet is still lodged in you. You haven't assimilated it. Just like if you haven't assimilated food, it causes problems. By, in other words, by properly chewing it, if your digestive system is not adequate. So our experiences, much, much of it, especially un, uh, unpleasant, is not fully received and taken care of. We either so identify with it, that would be the opposite of what the Buddha is suggesting here, because what you would hear is the mind uh, putting out a notion, telling you how you are. You're no good. You're stupid because of what I just said. Um, unfortunately, um, we give immense power to thought, which then controls us. We give tremendous authority to thought, which we then have to work our way out of because the thought creates unnecessary suffering. Now, this is for you to test. It's not for you to believe what I'm saying. But the only way you can is, not, is to watch your own mind and see how much, uh, in other words, the, capa the capacity to think is a beautiful human skill. Extraordinary, it's, what it's part of what makes us you, a human. I hope your mind works well, that it's clear, it's logical, it makes sense and it can do things that are called for. That part's great, but there's a huge amount of energy that's squandered that comes out of the conditioned mind that's compulsive. It's out of our control, the brain is just secreting it. And it's unexamined, we're so busy thinking and acting that we don't really understand what is happening as we live out our life because we're too busy using thought and something in beautiful ways, We all kinds of creative magnificent human accomplishment. So it's not to put thought down. What we're get pointing to is the, the thought is limited to certain realms where it's very, very useful and uh, an extraordinary part of being human and other realms where it's not appropriate. So in Dharma talk, uh, if you want to go to awakening, you can't think your way there. Sorry. It would just be thoughts about being awake and thoughts are limited. Thoughts are about things all the time. They're about whatever it is you want to talk. So this thought comes up and it tells you about yourself. Now, if you believe in it, if you make, I'm no good, I'm, f I'm stupid, then you, you, you may as well be. Because you've identified with it, you've given energy. So in part what the Buddha is saying here 
is don't define yourself by the productions or what your senses take in. If you define yourself by, by this, uh, then you're making self out of it. You create a notion of yourself. And here the Buddha gets, and that's why this sutra, uh, by the way, uh, Baya attained awakening. I forgot to mention that. <laughs> uh, and there's another, another one which I, it sounds almost holly. Well, anyway, you'll hear it. There's one more part that I'll save for a while. Uh, so Baya got it. Now, he was obviously ripe. He'd been doing his homework for a long time or had been doing, had some practice, and he, was, he really was, was there to receive the message. So what the Buddha was telling him, with, let's say, in regard to thought, because that is central to all this. What we hear, we turn into something. What we see, we turn into something. What, you know, uh, and all the other senses, the mind makes up what it is. Now, because it's unexamined, the, the mind is telling us what's real. And we think it is real. We're, what it is, is thoughts about what is happening, which we then take to be real because we've never really looked at it carefully. As you start looking at it carefully, you start seeing what a thought is. It's a thought. It's like skywriting that comes through. Let me give you an example. Oh, okay. Now, if you are, t if you're, these notions come through the mind about yourself. And in meditation, if you continue to come here, I know how I teach, and I think Michael, Ryan, Maddie, we have somewhat different styles, but eventually we get to just being able to be aware of the arising and passing away of whatever is coming up for you in a given moment. Well, we call it choiceless awareness, or just sitting and watching all the different mind states come and go, different emotions come and go, thoughts, moods, conditions of the body. And we're learning mindfulness is non-judgmental awareness. It's not reactive. It's not, there's no thinking in it. We already, we're not analyzing, we're not explaining, we're not doing all the things that we've had lots of practice doing, and they have their place. Here, we're learning the art of seeing. That's why I subtitled this, learning a, a pure observation. What we're learning is how to see accurately. And uh, starting with numero uno, we're learning how to see accurately ourselves. Uh, that requires a mind that's clear enough, just as if you, wanna, you need a good microscope and a good telescope. And if, you, if your vision is faulty and someone uh, uh, gives you a pair of glasses that really correct for the fault, it's a, suddenly the world is clearer. So uh, here, what we're doing is simultaneously training the mind so that it can be calm and clear, so that it can begin to see itself. And it's the clear seeing, that's why it's insight meditation, seeing into. It's the clear seeing that liberates us, because it begins to see things as they actually are. So most important to begin with, certainly, maybe period, is to see how we make self. What the Buddha says is that um, that's the source of uh, one of the main misuses, the main misuse of ignorance, is that, let's say, the thought, you are stupid, comes up. We make self out of it. We define ourselves by it. And as a result, we suffer tremendously. Now, if you see through that, that falls apart. If you do that with a lot of other things, suddenly that whole realm of thinking starts to lose its authority over you so that you can learn how to use thought when it's called for 
plenty, and you know, we get paid for it. We, I'm using it now. I'm thinking. I'm speaking, and when to uh, let it go into abeyance because what uh, what finally is this is about is clear seeing. At a certain point, it's not that the clear seeing leads to insight and liberation. The clear seeing is insight. The awareness can become like a flame, and steadier than anything that comes in front of it. And when that happens, even as it comes closer to that, you're not going to suffer as much because you can hear how so much of the fabrications of the mind are they made up. Okay, so a lot of liberation is we, we start to take the power out of thought. Let me give you an example. Um, this is a, a very uh, personal one, my own case. Um, my father... And uh, in the old Jews, and I, when I grew up, my father is dead. And if you mention anyone's dead, you would have to sort of, I don't know why, but you'd have to whisper it, may he rest in peace. You had to say it that way. So my father, Nathan, may he rest in peace. Uh, I don't know, maybe, okay. None of my remarks about religion or God or anything like that. But anyway, uh, we were close. And he, of course, I think what I'm about to say, he was very alert, intelligent. He was a very good father. I was fortunate. And suddenly at age 80, he had had good, very good health. All kinds of things went wrong because he had neglected himself. But one the main thing that went wrong is he developed Alzheimer's. Okay. So uh, that's, as you know, it's a horrible affliction. And so uh, at a certain point, I had the one of the most unpleasant jobs I've ever had to, uh, do, tasks I've ever had in life, which was to take him out of his home with my mother and move him to a, a nursing home. Um, and uh, to do that, it took some doing. And that was because his mind deteriorated to the point where it was dangerous for himself, for my mother, but also uh, for much of the time he wasn't making sense. So now he's in this nursing home in Amherst, Massachusetts. And I come up and visit him as often as I can, very often. And I start to notice after a few months that um, there's, I don't feel the connection with him that I always felt, even when he was giving me a hard time when I was a teenager. I still felt that emotional bond, even though I didn't like what was coming out of the bond, was part of the bond, uh, suddenly I felt, and it took a while, and I realized the diagnostic category, which is something has use, it's invented by people, Alzheimer's disease. And being the kind of person I am, I read a lot about Alzheimer's. I knew this and causes and possible ways to slow it down and pharmaceuticals and what this one and what part of the brain. So not that that helped, but I needed to do it. So I did it. And it took me a while to realize that I was not seeing my father with beginner's mind or don't know mind, or a clear mind, I was seeing him through a diagnostic category. Now, I'm not saying the diagnostic category is worthless. It's useful. It has its place. And that's why it's been devised. But it's been devised by humans. And then once a person gets called that, other things follow, certain medications, etc. Now, even if we didn't call it that, we had to take care of him in a way that was necessary. So in this culture, one way is a nursing home. And once I saw that I was seeing my father through a filter of uh, a diagnostic category, which is thinking, 
and it was unexamined I, because I, I, it was just part of what was going on. When that fell away, suddenly it was vivid again. We were connected again. And it led to some very wonderful and surprising occurrences. One was my father was very funny. Uh, but now with Alzheimer's, and I'd be there with my wife and my, uh, uh, my, wife and, and my mother, my sister and uh, her husband and her children, and we'd all be there. And my father would say something funny. Uh, it made no sense. And he would laugh, and we'd all sit there, you know, sort of like in rigor mortis, you know, sort of like, you know, it was sort of like a dead grin on our face, shit-eating grin, you know. Oh, can I say that? Is that, is that wrong speech? This is supposed to be Buddhist. We're very good. We only eat vegetables. We have certain voting preferences. Okay. No, uh, what do you call it? You're not allowed to eat it anymore. Gluten, that's right. Anyone here still eat gluten? We know you're out. Get out. Or GMO? Any GMOers here? <laughs> yeah. Doubly get out. Uh, okay. um, so at a certain point, uh, when I got free of the diagnostic category, understanding its value, I'm not, it's not either or, uh, and suddenly there was this familiar person, and it's true, his humor made no sense. But when he would start in, I would laugh with him. And that just made him so happy. And then when we'd leave, my parents, my mother, and my wife would say, and my sister, especially my sister, did you understand what dad was, the joke? I said, absolutely not. So, <laughs> so then I said, well, why did you laugh? I said, where's the law that says you have to understand to laugh? He laughed, so I did. you see the effect it had? Yeah. But they never really, they, never, they remained in the logical mode. Once I freed myself of that, I was able, I, sort of thinking out of the box, or it's not thinking out of the box, it's not thinking out of the thinking box. <laughs> okay. um, also, my father was very generous when, before Alzheimer's. Once he came into the nursing home, suddenly he became a skin flip, and he was very preoccupied with money, which was never his issue. And then one time, it was so sad, you know, he, he put his hand, he said, just give me ten dollars. It just put, says I reach back in my back pocket and all I fear, feel is my behind. Just give me ten dollars so I can put it in there and I'll feel good. And the nurses overheard and one attendant said, don't give it to him, don't give it to him. It'll just go down the toilet or it'll get washed out in the laundry. It's a waste of your ten dollars. This was before, before when I was still caught in the diagnostic category. So I didn't. Once I got free of the diagnostic category, uh, I gave him the $10. Again, my family, what do you give me? It's a, it's a total waste. I said, did you see how happy it made him just to give him the $10? He says, yeah, it did. How about the pharmaceuticals that cost as much more? Are they get, making him as happy as just this $10 that he will flush down the toilet? <laughs> so it allows you, um, there's a certain kind of freedom that you have, and you don't know what it's going to be. That's why it's beginner's mind, don't know mind's a form of intelligence, because it's the mind that can behave appropriately, maybe for the for this situation, only maybe only in that instance, and never again like that. So that when the mind is fresh, it's brilliant. It's a different kind of intelligence. That's the the, the, the that's wisdom at work, and that's that is when the mind gets silent. 
That's when you're starting to tap. If you start reading Buddhist books, that's the unconditioned. Or is there's something in our mind, in consciousness, that has not been conditioned. There's no suffering there. It's not been conditioned. There's no suffering. There's no, there's no fear of death. There's no like, dislike. There's no, CNN can't reach it. Nothing can reach it. Uh, it's just there. And it has infinite depth. And uh, it's a kind of, it's best I, I've just had a tiny taste of it. it. It's what happens once you start tapping the silence. And it's available. It's not something we import from India or Korea or Japan or Burma or anybody. It's, it's part of the human constitution. It's just we're caught up in this uh, conditioned realm trying to fix it. Self-improvement is probably why you came here. This is not about self-improvement. It's about self-transcendence. Okay. And we still have to live in this world, so you, you honor the certain conventions, of course. But you're starting to tap an energy. What The silence seems to activate a very subtle form of life energy. And all I can tell you is, and I do not understand it, I think that's why people are called mystics. I don't have a clue. Uh, you come out of it, and you're a little kinder. Um, I don't like to do metta. Many people tell you, I hate metta practice. I did about a year. You know, I did a lot of it. Can't stand it. You know, I don't want to pretend that I love him. May you be happy. My army sergeant, who I hated, you know, like, Sergeant Spade, may you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be free from suffering. He was rotten. He was cruel. He was anti-Semitic. He made my life miserable. Why in the world would I want to send love to him? Well, the Buddha said, if you do that, you'll be okay. Yeah, well, maybe, but not for me. Okay. Okay. So I far prefer to work with the truth of what is, is that I have tremendous still. Years, the army, I was 20 years old in the army, and uh, I have fixed it a bit. But let's see, there was a period when I tried to send Metta to Sergeant Spade, I couldn't get off the ground for years, you know, sort of, may you be happy, may you, it's like a battery being run down, you know, may you be peaceful, may you be free from suffering. Uh, then uh, one day, I, somehow, a thought or a voice came and said, he's a poor guy, he's very intelligent, he was. He had no education. He resented you. I, I was a college graduate, he said, and he was frustrated. He was in the army because it was the best thing he could do, and he liked to be in charge, blah, 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 and he was from a working-class background. Well, so was I. But anyway, so forgive him, and you'll feel better. It says that in the Dhammapada. Well, it turns out it's true. But it came not from me cultivating being a good person, but from me seeing that I wasn't, uh, that I had resentment. Screw you, Sergeant Spade. I'm never going to forget. And seeing that, and seeing the, co the cost of sustaining that mind state. That's not a skillful mind state. I'm suffering. Sergeant Spade, for all I know, was dead long ago. I don't know. It was a, it was 20, I was 20. That's a long time ago. And in the meantime, he's still alive and here. So, and I'm suffering, uh, in fact, kind of cherishing, not anymore, but I was cherishing it, sort of like, it's wonderful to hate this way, have this resentment, and nobody's going to take it away from me. It has bittersweet quality. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> it's a rhetorical question. Okay. Uh, uh, here's an example. Okay, I, I think I'm going to 
there's a lot that could be said about this sutta. First of all, let me give you an example from the Zen tradition, uh, which I was in for about 10 years, and especially in Japanese uh, Rinzai uh, Zen. It's in Soto as well. Those are the two main uh, approaches in contemporary Zen. Um, they talk a lot, at least five years of mine was in Rinzai, and it was in Korean Zen, but the Korean and Japanese, they're not identical, but some similarity. And they would talk, would talk about uh, seeing your true... Uh, Kensho, in the, when I was working with a Japanese teacher, the whole point was to attain, have the experience of Kensho. So everyone was striving to get Kensho. And what did Kensho mean? Kensho meant seeing your true nature. It's sometimes another called seeing your Buddha nature, your original nature, your original mind. The Tibetans call it natural mind, whatever. So this was called seeing your true mind, true nature. So everyone was trying to get this. Okay. So it's now when you hear, and this was quoted a lot about when you're thinking, a thought is just a thought, a sound is just a sound. In other words, you're not identifying with it. It's just what it is. Okay. Now then, what we, uh, the the error that all of us had, and that's a large part of what the teachers had to take away from us, was. Uh, we thought seeing your true nature, which sounded wonderful, because certainly this Larry, that, that's why I'm here, I've had enough of him, and fi finding my true nature, my true, you know, true me, okay, we, we want to, oh, there it is, there's my true nature out there, and what the teaching is saying is just seeing is your true nature, just hearing is your true nature, just smelling is your true nature. Just feeling touch is your true nature, etc. That means awareness. Finally, you'll see if you keep doing this or similar practices, it all comes down to awareness. So that the, sometimes people get too preoccupied with the objects in Vipassana. You know, uh, you'll get people after 10, 15 years of practicing, let's see, was that resentment or was that jealousy? And all kinds of, like, uh, it reminds me of graduate school where people are, no, I think that's jealousy. No, it's not. And go to Buddhist text, it's resentment. But they can see resentment, there's one, two, three. And, and, uh, the quality of awareness is what's crucial. The objects come and go. What we're trying to do is more and more see that there's something that knows. is a field that's always changing. Sounds, everything's coming and going. Test it. It's so obviously true. No sound stays forever. Gone. Okay. <laughs> Thoughts come and go. Uh, your mood has probably changed many times while you're here and so forth. Moods come and go. Thoughts come and go. Images in the mind come and go. The condition of the body comes and go. Come, in other words, the law of change, impermanence. Uh, it's not particularly Buddhist, but the Buddha capitalized on it. He, he turned awareness around and said, see this law at work in yourself. See how all the productions of the mind, the fabrications, the conditioned energy, how that conditioned energy, it all arises and passes away. There isn't a solid you, because as soon as, well, yes, that's me, and it's gone. And then another one that's contradictory comes up and says, no, I'm you. And you say, but I thought that was. No, that's passe. I'm you. Okay, and, now I'm, and then that one is gone. Uh, and at a certain point, you realize you enjoy the show. It's a hilarious show, and it's funnier than Saturday Night Live. The mind keeps reassuring itself, tearing itself down, 
uh, putting itself up, putting itself down, planning how it's going to be great, worrying about this. And, you, and there's something that's just awake already. It's not that you import it from Asia or someplace. It's here. It's you. As, this, as you start seeing more and more, as it falls away, falls away, falls away, falls away, uh, what's left? That, that's Kensho. So what's left is, it's not like you get absorbed and you disappear from the world. It's that you're in the world, but you're aware of it in a much more intimate, naked way is a direct communion with your experience. Uh, let's say if you're grieving, if you've lost someone dear to you. Uh, in my own case, again, it was with my father, I thought I had grieved properly. And what, but then when I discarded, put his ashes in the ocean, Atlantic Ocean, which is where he wanted them, uh, then I did a short retreat a few days, and I got into pure 100% grief energy. There was no Larry there. which was just total 100% if I had to use a word, it's inadequate. Grief, I don't know. Look in the dictionary. Grief is, da -da, when you lose a loved one, da -da -da -da. fine, but it's just words. All I know is it was just, there was no self-pity, there was no me in it, it was just what it was. And what a difference it makes. Okay. Um, Vaya got it. And he got free. So, but then he, he, remember he says to the Buddha, and some of these stories are too neat and tidy for me, but they're good for teaching. Uh, he, he says to the Buddha, look, everything is uncertain and unpredictable. Uh, you might die, I might die. So Baya attains awakening, and then he goes out and he gets, uh, he approaches a, uh, they sometimes translate it as cow. It couldn't be, it was, uh, it's probably, it was something like a, um, a water buffalo, and the mother water buffalo, if you come near its child, becomes vicious. It's very protective. You know, it's in nature. The mother protects her child. And so somehow he got, and he was gored to death. So he died. And so the monks asked, well, how, what, what's with this Baya guy, you know, the bar-clad one? He said, he attained full awakening. We have to give him a burial for somebody who's, uh, who's awakened, fully awakened. Um, and so that's how that ends. Nice, huh? <laughs> Except, not Hollywood, he dies too soon, but all right. Um, let me make it personal and end with this. When the teachings came from India to China, a man named Bodhidharma came to China. Many of you have heard this story. I think it's appropriate for this. Um, Bodhidharma comes to China, and at that point, Buddhism had already been in China for a while, but it was mainly ritualistic, ceremonial, and scholarly. No one was really, very little meditation going on. People were not tasting the juice of what the Buddha intended. They were just behaving, you know, weddings and bar mitzvahs. That's all it was. You know. okay. uh, or they were just studying and arguing over what the Buddha really, really meant. So. Suddenly, Bodhidharma comes there, and he's, he's supposed to be a real awakened master from India. It took him a long time to get there. He's already old. And the emperor hears about this, and he goes to, and he goes to meet Bodhidharma. And, he, and he, he meets Bodhidharma, and he says, um, I've financed all of these uh, um, temples. I've supported the monks and nuns. I've given them food. I've given to charity. He lists all the good things he's done. How much merit? Do I, uh, do I attain from that? And Bodhidharma says, none. 
and the emperor is taken aback. In other words, it's, too, it's an ego trip. You know, sort of like, I did all this good stuff. What do I, it's a business deal. What do I get? Do I get a lot of merit? Good rebirth. <laughs> Something good must come out of it. Why else would I do that stuff? Okay. So he's a little bit shocked by that. And then he says, okay, uh, tell me about the holy life. And he gets a little very schmaltzy life. And Bodhidharma says, nothing holy about it. It's just vast, empty space. Again, the emperor is really disappointed. And he says, who is this that's telling me all this stuff? He's kind of annoyed. And Bodhidharma says, I have no idea. <laughs> okay. Is, is he an amnesiac? Did he just undergo electric shock therapy? Is he totally... Lo Did he have Alzheimer's? He meant he's not an idea. So sometimes you'll hear blessed, in, in Buddhist circles you may hear it, to me it makes total, blessed is the person who's a nobody. That means you're no longer working for these notions that the mind manufactures about who you used to be, who you, like here, you probably have them. If I come to CIMC and I go to IMS and I sit and do a three-month retreat and da, 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 study with this one, that one, read this book, go through that, you know, and be a nice person, eat vegetables and so forth, uh, I'll be something good's going to come out of it, right? Because I'm a jerk now, but if I do this, someday I'm going to be fantastic. And everyone will love me, and then I'll be a big teacher and sit up there, and everyone will look at me like that. Okay. Uh, okay, do I, I don't have to explain. Nobody is, when you free yourself, not that these notions don't come through the mind, but you're no longer taking them... You're not defining yourself by the productions of the mind. The productions of the mind still come and go. But you're no longer identifying with them as being me or belonging to me. Um, last story. You know, it's, I'm incurable. <laughs> um, see if you don't have a version of this. I'm trying to make it personal that this sutra is about us. Uh, when I was very, very young, uh, I loved cowboys. And I had little toy cowboys to play with and cowboy movies and little books about cowboys. So one day my father bought me, a Tom Mix was a famous cowboy and he had a radio show, bought me a Tom Mix cowboy outfit. It had chaps and two six-shooters and a vest and a big hat. And I would, you know, in front of the mirror, I would go, you know, and I was... I felt so good in that cowboy outfit. It was just a great feeling. Then I, when I grew up at a certain point, so that was who I thought I was. At a certain point, this is for stupid, it's for kids. I discarded it, couldn't wait. I don't even know what ever happened to it, and who cares? Tom Mix, get out of here. Just, so then I moved on. I think it was, in, it was a baseball outfit. I had my nice heart baseball outfit with spike shoes, and a hat. They didn't have the big hats now, just ordinary cap, you know, and uh, the name of, I was a Yankee fan, so it had the New York Yankees on the back, and my father bought me my own little bat, and I'd be in front of the mirror, you know, and this, then it became base, basketball, and my mother said I, she'd see me from the window, I'd be coming home from school, bouncing an invisible basketball, and in the winter, another insane friend of mine, we would take, uh, we would go to the playground, shovel off all the snow, and play, shoot hoops, you know, and uh, there I was. And I, by the way, this sh uh, short hair. People say, "Oh, you down deep, you want to be a monk." Never wanted to be a monk. 
it's all the best basketball players came from the Midwest and they had crew cuts, especially from Kentucky and Indiana. And I wanted to be like them. Or later on, I wanted to be a Marine. That would make me a real American because I felt, you know, I'm an immigrant ki immigrant's kid. And if I, if I joined the Marines, you know, stand up tall, that outfit and Semper Fi and all, wow, I'll be magically transformed. I'll go from 5'8 to 6'4 and my hair will suddenly turn blonde and my eyes will turn blue and I'll be a real American guy. <laughs> okay, so all of those, they came and they went and they came and they went. They had their time. Then I became a professor and I remember getting an old weathered briefcase in London from a used bookshop and I, my fantasy made up with this briefcase. Probably someone had it from Oxford or Cambridge and the papers went in. It was already, the guy said, you know, it's 50 years old. That made it more valuable for me. You know, so I, I would walk around with my wonderful briefcase and then, you know, tweed, uh, tweed underwear, tweed, you know. <laughs> okay. Then that died. Then that died. Then became like a yogi with wearing only Indian clothes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.